So welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS. Technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Dave Walters. In today's episode, we're going to talk about IFRS 17, the insurance standard for non-insurers. And I'm joined by Sandra Thompson, who's the leader of our global financial instruments team, and a newbie to uh, the IFRS podcasts, Andrea Pride, who has just joined us and is a director in our global ACS team. Andrea, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Andrea Pride. Um, I've just joined, as um, we've said, the uh, Central ACS team, um, having come recently from the ISB staff, where I led their IFRS 17 projects and delivered podcasts for them. Excellent. So uh, we've got uh, genuine experts in the room uh, here to help us uh, on this uh, on this tricky subject. So uh, I shall start with Sandra. So surely non-insurers don't need to worry about IFRS 17. Why should they be interested? Oh, if only. <laughs> you knew I was going to answer that, didn't you? Yeah. Um, I think the important thing to notice on IFRS 17 is not a standard for insurance companies. It's a standard for insurance contracts. Right. And I think as we'll go on to illustrate, unfortunately, insurance contracts are more common than you might think. Um, so just because you're not an insurance company doesn't mean you're not in the standard. And there are some kinds of contracts that non-insurers routinely write in the course of their business that can potentially be caught. And weren't insurance contracts caught under IFRS 4? And if, if the company didn't have any insurance contracts which, where they applied IFRS 4, do they not need to worry now? Well, and that's actually a very good question. Um, not least because the definition of an insurance contract has hardly changed between IFRS 4 and, and IFRS 17. So you might think, well, if I don't have a problem today, what am I worried about? However, I'm afraid the accounting under IFRS 17 is very different from right. IFRS 4 in a number of respects. Um, the first thing is I sometimes call IFRS 4 the gift that keeps on giving because, <laughs> to be honest, there wasn't a lot you couldn't do under IFRS 4. Um, so it enabled you to continue to use local GAP. Um, enabled you to do an approach that was very similar to IS 37 um, or maybe to something that's quite similar to IFRS 9. So depending on your business model, you may have inadvertently complied with IFRS 4 without necessarily even realise you had an insurance contract at the time. Now, unfortunately, when we get to IFRS 17, that isn't going to be the case. Um, And we'll come on at a very high level as to what IFRS 17 requires, but it, it significantly restricts the range of choices you had under IFRS 4 and it has a much more rigorous measurement model in it. I think the other important thing to note is that under IFRS 4, you had the ability to what's often called unbundle. So if you had a product that include both an insurance element and a non-insurance element, you could essentially separate those in pretty much all circumstances, and many companies did. And then you'd apply insurance accounting to the insurance element mm-hmm. and your normal accounting to the other bit. Yeah. Now, under IFRS 17, there are much more limited rules about unbundling. So you won't be able to do that in nearly so many cases. And that means if you can't unbundle, the whole contract is in IFRS 17. So no part of it gets out. So even though your contract may have a relatively small insurance element, it can have the effect of dragging the entire contract into the insurance standard. So thank you, Sandra, for for scaring us uh, and uh, uh, I guess identifying that actually we could have a lot of contracts out there that are now in the scope of the new standard. Yeah. So uh, Andrea, how can I tell if I've got a contract that is affected? 
Well, I think I might be about to scare you some more, I'm afraid. <laughs> so as Sandra said, the, um, the accounting in IPRS 17 applies to the type of contract. So you've got to look at the characteristics of the contract you've got and think about whether this is an area where you might need to consider whether IPRS 17 applies. And the definition is uh, sounds relatively straightforward. They're defined as contracts in which one party, which we call the insurer, accepts significant insurance risk from another party, mm-hmm. which is normally the policyholder, by agreeing to compensate the policyholder if a specific and certain future event adversely affects the policyholder. So there's a number of things in there which we need to sort of pick apart and think about. Um, and I think probably the key thing which everyone thinks about when they're thinking about insurance is this idea of an uncertain future event. So typically, you know, damage or breakdown or things that um, maybe perhaps the chance that a specific asset doesn't make enough money to you know, pay off your mortgage mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you do. Um, or the amount of output doesn't generate enough output to give you the sort of revenues you're looking for. So there's some sort of uncertainty there and it's some sort of uncertainty in the future. Um, There needs to be a transfer of risk from whoever is buying the insurance to the the insurer, um, whether they're an insurance company or not. And the risk needs to be um, an insurance risk, which is different from a financial risk. The bit that people mostly need to think about is whether the the risk is something that's specific to the person who is trying to buy this insurance. And I think it's also worth remembering that the definition of significant insurance risk in um, IFRS 17 is very different from what other people think of as significant, because it just requires one one scenario with, with commercial substance to occur that someone that the insurer will have to pay out a large amount that means that that would be significant insurance risk and within the scope of the standard okay so, yeah uh, so that, there's a fair number of contracts there that could be affected um, what about derivatives then because they sound a bit like insurance well they do in that you've got uncertainty but actually if you look at um, derivatives they are financial risk and not insurance risk and in fact the definition of insurance risk is written to be the opposite of the definition of financial risk which is um, aligned to what a derivative is defined at so derivatives for the most part are excluded from the scope of IFRS 17. Okay, so the good news is that derivatives are excluded, but the definition still sounds very wide. Are there any contracts that are excluded from the scope of this standard? Uh, Yes, there's quite a few contracts, as it happens, that sound as if they meet the definition of insurance contracts, but are nonetheless excluded from the scope of 17. And these are contracts that generally um, the ISB felt um, the existing accounting under IFRS uh, IFRS standards um, gave useful information and so IFRS 17 would not meet a cost-benefit test. Um, So examples would be things like um, warranties that are provided by a a manufacturer who sort of makes something and says, I promise that within three years if it breaks down, I'll give you a replacement or or Mm. make good. Um, Those are outside the scope. Um, There's also contractual rights and obligations to use some non-financial items. So for example, license fees, royalties, variable and contingent lease payments, those are outside the scope of IFRS 17 as well. Um, residual value guarantees, they also fall within that those exemptions. So that would be the case, like if you've got a, a car lease and mm. you say that whatever the value of the car is, you only pay this amount, that, that might meet the definition of an insurance contract, but is excluded from the scope of the standard. Um, and so they would just apply other standards like IFRS 15, IFRS 16 or mm. whatever, or IFRS 9 to, mm. to those types of contracts. Um, and in addition, you've got some companies which, uh, some contracts where companies have the option to choose to apply either IFRS 17 or another standard. Um, so, for example, there'll be things like fixed fee service contracts where the customer pays a fixed fee 
to receive um, cleaning products or mm. lift maintenance or telephone um, repairs um, as many times as they want. Mm. Those are excluded from the scope as well. And some financial guarantee contracts, you've got the option to choose to apply either IFRS 9 or IFRS 17 to those contracts. So uh, that is, I think, a helpful list of exclusions from IFRS 17. So uh, one, one final thing on the scope exclusions. What if I buy an insurance contract and hold it? Is that in the scope? Um, well, that's, uh, it, it is in the scope if you happen to be an insurance company that issues insurance contracts. So those would be reinsurance contracts yeah. that you've bought to insure your insurance contracts. But if you're just an, a normal company buying insurance for normal business, just to make sure that when your building burns down, you're not, not in trouble, then there is a scope exclusion because um, IFRS 17 applies only to insurance contracts issued. Excellent. So there is some good news in this that we have got some, some exclusions uh, from the uh, from the scope of the standard, but uh, Sandra, so what are some examples of contracts that a non-insurer might issue that could still be in the scope that we should look out for? Yeah, thanks. And unfortunately, there are still quite a few things <laughs> left in the scope. You might I be wondering if there was anything, but there is. Um, I should just add a health warning at this point that it will very much depend on the individual facts and circumstances and terms of contracts. So I'm not saying all these definitely are in scope, but they're the kinds of products you should be looking out for. And what I'm going to do is give you three examples from the banking sector yep. and then four examples from the elsewhere, elsewhere the normal corporates, yep. if you like. So if okay. we start with the banking sector, um, I think the one that everyone now recognises is insurance, is um, insurance over things like credit cards and payment cards. Right. So for example, if I um, buy an, an airline ticket on my credit card or maybe I buy a present for my granny at Christmas because I fancy it on the internet but I'm not quite sure who the supplier is, I've never bought off them in the past. I will often use my credit card because mm. I know that if the airline goes bust or indeed the wonderful internet supplier doesn't deliver my goods or they turn out to be faulty, I can claim off the credit card company. Yep. Now that is insurance. Um, unfortunately, that's not only in credit cards, that's in things like debit cards and other kind of payment cards as well. So those kind of insurance over goods and services delivered that is insurance. And that's very wide-reaching, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the ISB is aware of that. And we'll mention in a minute, they've, they've got an exposure draft they issued earlier this year with some proposed amendments. And as they're written today, they will take some, but not all of those, out of the scope. Okay. But we'll see where they go with that. So one to watch. Um, the other thing that's increasingly common in, in banking products, things like current accounts, is fraud protection. Mm. So banks are increasingly offering their customers that if they get scanned into making a payment, they thought it was a, a valid invoice but it was bogus, yes. or maybe um, someone hacks into their bank accounts and steals their identity, they will reimburse. That also is insurance. So there's another one in the scope. Um, and the final one I'm going to talk about in the banking sector is something called equity release mortgages. Now, if This you've is got, generally the elderly, isn't it? It is, yeah. If you've got an older relative, one of your relatives might have one of these. So you're dead right, Dave. They're normally sold to older people, often in retirement, who want to free up some money to go on their round-the-world cruise or enjoy a happy, healthy retirement. So what they do is they enter into mortgage on their, their house, um, now they're in retirement, so they don't have much income. So the interest on that mortgage is added to the outstanding balance. So there aren't any cash payments until such time as the borrower either goes into long-term care or unfortunately they die. And at that point, the house is sold and the sales proceeds are used to repay the outstanding balance of the mm. principal plus accrued interest. However, if the house sales don't realise enough 
to repay the mortgage, then the bank who gave that mortgage suffers the loss. And there's the insurance that's element. Insurance. And that's a classic example of where most banks would have unbundled that today. So yeah. just accounting for that insurance element um, in the insurance world, perhaps doing an IS37 type methodology. But under IFRS 17, the whole product would be in scope. So you can see how, how that's going to be quite different from where we are today. So I think you've given three examples there of banks and financial services companies who where these are widespread, so this is yeah. a big standard for them. It is, yeah, and I don't think necessarily all the banks have quite realised that, yeah, and it will depend on, say, on some, where some of the scope exclusions are finalised, yeah. but yes, this is potentially quite a big issue for some of the banks. Assuming I'm not a bank, <laughs> <laughs> where, where, do I, where do I need to look in, in, uh, in the non-financial services sector? Yeah, so just a few examples there. Some, the first one is what I might call a performance guarantee or a surety bond. You see these in the construction world. You see these in the construction world, exactly. So... Um, company A wants a big item constructed, a big construction project. However, it's worried that the contractor who's constructing it might fail to deliver, might go bust. Mm. So therefore, they pay an amount to company C to say, well, if my contractor goes bust, will you step in and complete the project? Yeah. Um, and of course, they're insuring the risk. So company C, in this case, is insuring the risk that contractor doesn't perform and it will step in and do it. That would be insurance. Um, the next one I want to give an example of is extended guarantees or warranties. So as Andrea said, if you provide a warranty over your own products that you've sold, that's outside the scope. However, there are some guarantees or warranties that go wider than yes. your own product. So maybe your own product is a component into a bigger product, and you essentially warrant if that bigger product fails, which may not be done due to anything you supplied, then you'll make up the shortfall, you'll replace it or you'll repair it. or yeah, so. That too would be insurance. Okay. My third one, this crops up in Asia actually, it's quite an interesting one. So this is an example of a, a hotel management services company. So their business is to provide management of hotels, often to hotels that are being relaunched or newly developed. And there'll be a hotel owner who's often a financial investor. And as part of that contract, they'll guarantee to the, the owner, the financial investor, that there'll be at least a minimum level of profitability in this hotel. Maybe it's a minimum level of EBITDA or something similar. Yes. That too, that's I'm an, afraid. That's an insurance. That's insurance. <laughs> and that um, might be more, more widely applicable across a whole range of franchising operations. Yes, that could be. I don't, don't, yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. But it's that it's kind a, of... It's something yeah, to ask, isn't it? It's something to ask, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then my final one, um, this crops up in things like wind farms and solar farms. Um, something we call a load following swap. So if you're um, an owner of a wind farm or a solar farm, you don't know how much output that yeah. farm's going to generate. It will depend on how much the sun shines or how much the wind blows. Um, and you can enter into a contract in some parts of the world with a, another party that basically guarantees a, at least a minimum amount of, of electricity or output generated by that farm. Now, where those are at a predetermined price, so maybe you expect that your farm's going to generate 100 million megawatts. Mm. It may say that, well, to the extent it doesn't, we'll compensate, it could mm. be unders and overs, but certainly compensate for any shortfall at a fixed price of £10 a megawatt. Yeah. Um, that too. That's insurance. Sounds like insurance. <laughs> and it's worth noting that's not a derivative because it's insuring, if you like, the specific output from that wind farm. It's not saying how many hours the sun shines. Yes. Or how... It's not a weather derivative. It's not a weather yeah. derivative. It's a specific to that, that particular asset who, who owns it, one of the parties to the contract. 
Uh, and is that fairly widespread in that sector? Um, I think it's growing, like all these things around wind farms and solar farms. It's a fairly new emerging sector. Yeah. I don't think we've seen huge numbers of them yet, but it's probably a, a growing sport, if you like. <laughs> we certainly see more of that. So there we go. So we've got plenty of contracts there that are uh, potentially in scope that companies mm. need to look out for. So uh, Andrea, now that Sandra has highlighted, we've got lots of contracts out there that are potentially in scope. Uh, what does IFRS 17 require? And so this is where it starts to get a little bit more technical, I'm afraid. But um, essentially what IFRS 17 requires for insurance contracts is an updated current value measurement model. So it measures um, the value of these obligations that the companies have taken on themselves um, to be measured based on what they expect by looking at all the different scenarios in which they expect um, payments and to take a probability-weighted assessment mm -hmm. of those expected cash flows um, and adjust them for the fact that some of these cash flows are way into the future, some of them might be quite soon. So adjust them for the time value of money and also adjust them for the amount of um, uncertainty there because people don't like taking on uncertain things. They'd much rather have a you know, mm. fixed payment. They'd rather pay 100 than take the possibility of, zero and 200. So there's, a, there's an adjustment there for that effect of uncertainty as well. Um, so that's a, a very actuarial model of, of measuring these. It um, sounds reasonably familiar to us from sort of impairment testing world. It is exactly the same yeah. with that. I think the complication with insurance is that there is a profit that needs to be allocated over the time. Right. And it's quite difficult to see how that specify how that profit gets allocated over potentially you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So that is where a lot of the complexity of IFRS 17 comes in, is in the allocation of this profit or what um, the insurers will know us as the CSM. Um, CSM being? CSM is the contractual service margin and the that's margin. the embedded profit that you yeah. make when you're selling an insurance contract, which somehow you have to work out when you earn it and allocate that over time. So that, that is where the essential complexity of IFRS 17 really lies, because actuaries can do clever things with the cash flows. Um, but it's not all bad news. <laughs> um, there is a simplified model within the standard, um, which is called a premium allocation approach, um, which is similar in some ways to, to the revenue model, where you take yeah. the, the, the transaction price and allocate it over the time that you're providing the service in the contract. Um, and it's limited to either contracts of 12 months or less, or contracts where you can demonstrate that the outcome is going to be the same as applying the more complex IFRS 17 model. And in order to demonstrate it, the outcome is going to be the same as the more complex model. Presumably, you have to do the complex model. Well, you don't have to for, do for the whole of it. For an example of a transaction. <laughs> I think you probably have to think about what sort of things would make it different. So right. things like big variability in possible cash, out, uh, cash flows, um, long durations, a lot of varying risks which might be uneven. Mm. Those are the sorts of things that would put you outside the scope of the premium allocation approach. Okay. But, but, it, but I guess in summary, if you've got a contract that is in the model, you've got quite a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, which may well involve actuaries um, to uh, identify how you should measure the liability and indeed how you should recognise the profit. Yes, I think that's fair. But on the other hand, there are a lot of insurance contracts that are less than 12 months. So all your car insurance, most of the um, household insurance that you mm. think of buying when you think about insurance, um, most of them will be 12-month contracts or less. So a lot of them will also be out of the scope as well. So they're non-life type insurances. Okay, so, so there's a subset um, I guess actually for the big insurance companies who, who may well write most of their businesses 12 months or less, they will be in the simplified version, whereas people who are giving performance guarantees on a five-year construction project will find so themselves in probably be in the more complicated model, yes. Wow. 
So uh, when does IFRS 17 apply? So IFRS 17 is due to become um, effective from the 1st of January 2021, um, so that is um, just a few years away. Um, but Sandra mentioned an exposure draft of amendments mm. um, that has been recently issued. So the ISB is actually currently considering whether, as part of these amendments, they would be a deferral of the effective date. Um, and we're expecting that the ISB is going to finalise these amendments in mid-2020, so you'll, you'll know whether or not there's a deferral um, by then. But given that's mid-2020, it's important that companies don't wait to find out what happens before working out if they are affected by IFRS 17, um, because there's also a requirement, of course, to restate comparatives. And so if you are going to comply with a 2021 or even a slightly deferred um, effective date, you, you do need to get on with it, really. So, uh, Sandra, what are the key messages for companies? Um, well, I think the first message is don't assume you're not in the scope of the insurance standard. Hopefully, I've we've given that. you a, a flavour of some things that you yeah. might not have thought were in scope but are. So, don't put your head in the sand. Yes. Um, go and do some kind of project to work out what you have got that might in, be in scope and do the technical analysis. And I think we've highlighted there probably are more insurance contracts out there than you might ever have thought. Um, and I think my second message is don't leave it to the last minute. Um, the IFRS 17 measurement model can be quite complicated. I think like many other bits of accounting where we're trying to estimate measurements over long periods of time. So we have it in pensions, we have it in share-based payments. When you get into the detail of applying the model, it is complicated. It's inherent in trying to measure something that's a, a very big estimate over a very long period. So um, get on with it, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So... Uh... I think that's all we've got time for in this particular podcast. So, uh, so thank you very much to Sandra and Andrea for providing us with uh, some things to look out for. Uh, the insurance standard, I think many, many of us would look at that and think that's for insurers. Uh, I think we've highlighted in this podcast that it actually affects a wide range of companies in a wide, in a wide range of ways. So, so thank you for that. If you want more guidance uh, on this and many other topics, uh, we've got plenty of uh, guidance on PwC Inform, uh, also pwc.com forward slash IFRS. Uh, and in the meantime, continue to subscribe to these podcasts and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.